Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week I have a different guest, sometimes writers, liturgists, people who are running apostolates, people telling their conversion story. Today my guest is Jimmy Aiken, who is the senior apologist at Catholic Answers based in California. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Father Longenecker. Jimmy, quite an august title, Senior Apologist, Catholic Answers. Can you give us a little bit of, of your own story? Because I think you yourself are a convert to the Catholic faith. Is that correct? That's right. And I've wanted to be an apologist for a long time, even before I was Catholic. For folks who may not know, apologetics is the study of how to defend or explain a position. And Christian apologists defend the Christian faith. Within Christian apologetics, there's Catholic apologetics, which specifically defends the Catholic faith. And that's something that I was interested in back before I was a Catholic. I grew up with a kind of mixed religious background. I had some some early experience with Christianity when I was small, but then my parents stopped going to church. In my uh, teenage years, I was actually a New Ager, and then when I was 20, I had a conversion to Christ, and I became very interested in the Christian faith and studying it and how to defend it against alternative viewpoints. I didn't want to just reflexively fall into the theology of the church that happened to be down the street from me. I wanted to know what was really true, and so I read extensively in the beliefs of different groups of Christians to try to figure out which version of the Christian faith was the true one, was the one that was accurate. And as time progressed, I began to make discoveries that pointed in the direction of the Catholic faith. That was something that was very foreign to my background. I grew up in the South, and in my state, there were not very many Catholics at all at that time. I grew up in Arkansas, and there were like 3% of the population was Catholic, and most of that was in an area of Arkansas that I didn't live in. So I didn't really know much about Catholics, and it took a while to kind of come around and decide, okay, I've got to look at Catholicism with an open mind. But when I did, I concluded that the things I had been reading in the Bible that sounded Catholic were Catholic, and so I needed to be Catholic. And so you came into the Catholic Church from what? Were you Baptist or just a a Bible Church fundamentalist? What was your background? For some time, my theology would largely have been Baptist, but then I ended up becoming a Presbyterian Mm -hmm. in the conservative Presbyterian Church, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. And I was actually under care of session, as the jargon goes, uh, which meant I was looking at being a minister. And I had desired to be a Protestant minister or seminary professor, and I was studying toward that end when my plans kind of got derailed. And so you were there studying to be a Presbyterian pastor, and your studies brought you to the threshold of the Catholic Church. If you were like me and uh, like so many others who went on this similar journey, a very important part of that must have been the reading and discovering the Apostolic Fathers. Is that correct? Yeah, like a lot of folks in the Protestant community, I had a a great focus on figuring out what did the early Christians believe. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was limiting myself if to answer that question, I just looked at the New Testament, because there were more early Christians than just the ones we read about in the New Testament. It makes sense 
to look at the early church fathers as well, who were closer in time and culture and worldview to the New Testament writers, it just made sense to look at, at the writings of the church fathers to determine or shed additional light on the meaning of the New Testament. And when I did that, I found that the early church fathers had very different understandings and much more Catholic understandings of certain points than I would have suspected based on the kind of Baptist Presbyterian theology that uh, I had absorbed from my cultural environment. One point in particular that I noted was the Church Fathers have an understanding of baptism that really stresses the fact that it's regenerating you, that it's accomplishing the creation of new spiritual life in you. That's something that's different than what most Presbyterians would understand. It nevertheless is something that is what the Church Fathers understood, and it's also something that is pretty clear in the New Testament. And so with the New Testament and the Church Fathers agreeing on the fact that baptism is a real means of grace, it does accomplish regeneration, that's something that made me have to rethink that whole area. I know in my background, Jimmy, I was brought up as an evangelical fundamentalist and then went to England to study to be an Anglican priest. And even studying theology at Oxford University in the Anglican Church, which you would have thought would have a a more deeply historical and theological basis, we hardly even touched on the Church Fathers, more than we did at Bob Jones. But even there, we read Augustine and we tiptoed through, you know, Irenaeus and Cyprian in a very very selective way, I have to say. But we weren't encouraged to really dig deep and study them in depth. We also basically did like a lot of Protestants did, and we jumped over the Middle Ages, which were just written off as as those corrupt dark ages, you know, to the Reformation where the real church started up again. And so when I was an Anglican priest, some 10 years after my studies at Oxford, is when I really began to read the Apostolic Fathers, and my eyes were just opened, and I was saying, why did nobody ever tell us about this? And reading about Ignatius of Antioch when he talks about the authority of the bishop and uh, how nothing must be done without the bishop and the only valid Eucharist is that which is approved by the bishop and so forth. All these very Catholic concepts were there. So reading these early writings really brought me, like you, to reconsider the Catholic Church. It's interesting you say that at your studies at Oxford they didn't focus much on the Church Fathers because I guess it was before when you might have been there, but the Anglican scholar J.N.D. Kelly who wrote uh, extensively about early Christian doctrines and who was favorable to the Catholic position and would acknowledge the Catholicity of the early Church Fathers. He was at Oxford. Um, Had that fallen off by the time you were there, that emphasis on them? Uh, Now we're getting into the complexities of Anglicanism. (laughs) You see, (laughs) no, J.N.D. Kelly was still very much there and and, and was a a monumental figure. He, He wasn't still living at the time, but he was there as one of the greats. But I went, to, uh-huh. I went to Wycliffe Hall, which you can tell by the name Wycliffe Hall, was yeah. very much in the Protestant end of Anglicanism. See, within Anglicanism, as you know, there are the low church evangelicals, the liberals, and then the Anglo-Catholics. Each group has their own seminary. And so I was going to Wycliffe Hall, which was an evangelical Protestant seminary within Anglicanism, and that's why we didn't study the Church Fathers. Had I gone to St. Stephen's House or Murfield or one of the Anglo-Catholic Anglican seminaries, then, of course, we would have studied more of the Fathers. Okay. So, Jimmy, you've moved then into the Catholic Church, and then you have got very involved as the senior apologist at Catholic Answers. Can you tell us a bit about how the work and the apostolate of Catholic Answers has grown over the years? 
Yeah, it was started by a guy named Carl Keating, and he came out of his uh, parish one Sunday morning, and a local fundamentalist church had leafleted all of the cars in the parking lot. And so he uh, read their their leaflet, and he composed a response, and then he went to the fundamentalist church and leafleted all of their cars. (laughs) And, And... that was the first publication of Catholic Answers. He rented a P.O. box and uh, put the address on, the, on his response leaflet. And surprisingly, he got some responses by mail. Mm-hmm. And he had requests for more information about the Catholic faith. And uh, he ended up writing quite a number of tracts. And those were kind of the beginning point of Catholic Answers. And it's grown from there in the last 30-something years. Today, we have about 45 staff members, and we're located in San Diego, California, and we try to use all the different media we can today. We still publish tracks, but we also publish books, DVDs, MP3s. We have uh, Catholic Answers Live, a daily radio show on more than 200 stations. We have Catholic.com, one of the largest internet Catholic websites, and so we try to do whatever we can to get the message of the faith out. Are you getting response not only from fundamentalists now, but from Christians of other denominations? Yeah. The early focus of Catholic Answers was on fundamentalism, because fundamentalists tend to be pretty anti-Catholic. Especially at the time, there were a lot of attacks that were being launched on the Catholic Church by fundamentalists, and there still are today, but it seems the climate has changed, I think partly due to the pro-life movement and the shifting of the culture away from its Christian foundations. There are still anti-Catholic Protestants, but a lot more Protestants today recognize that Catholics are fellow Christians and appreciate the Catholic faith more. And, you know, there are even evangelicals today who, who will be very attached to the Pope. I know that's certainly been the case when John Paul II died. Some in the Protestant community would refer to him as, as our Pope, too. And uh, Benedict XVI had a lot of people in the evangelical community who really appreciated him. And uh, it seems that uh, Protestants today are continuing their interest with Pope Francis. So there's been kind of a climate shift in a lot of ways, and that's had an impact on the work that Catholic Answers does. We still try to cover all of the bases as, as best we can, not just with responding to queries from other Christians who aren't Catholic, but also with atheists and uh, Muslims and uh, people of all different faiths. I recognize that too. I'm based here in Greenville, South Carolina, and after high school, I went to Bob Jones University. Bob Jones was really not friendly to Catholics. It was very unfriendly. I was actually there when Pope Paul VI died, and we had the the month of three popes. And uh, right. there were an awful lot of very juicy comments made from the pulpit about the Catholics and the Pope and the Antichrist and the Great Whore of Babylon and all that sort of thing. But you're right, the climate has changed. And here in Greenville, we're far more likely to find a friendly response from not only mainstream evangelicals, but also from a lot of the fundamentalists. They're not as strident. They're realizing that in many ways, the Catholic Christians they meet are the ones who are uh, most fervently involved in their faith and proclaiming the faith best they can, and and also involved socially in the pro-life cause, as you said, and in other things. But one of the other aspects of this growth of friendliness, I think, has been the fact that a lot of evangelical fundamentalists have actually begun to read and study a bit more themselves about the history of the church, especially the recent history of the church, as well as the ancient history of the church, and beginning to realize that what they were taught about Catholicism 
with all that harsh language and all the polemic and all the uh, half-truths and misunderstandings and deliberate lies, that it was actually unfair. And they're beginning to come around and look again at Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and now Pope Francis and say, here is the ancient church alive in the world today. Here's the church. I may not understand all of the the doctrines and I, I may disagree with some of them, but there's something about it which is authentic, which which I like, and, and they're more open-minded to it. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. You're listening to More Christianity, and our conversation is about apologetics, and my guest is Jimmy Aiken, Senior Apologist at Catholic Answers. Jimmy, you were saying that the climate has shifted in our culture. The conversation has shifted away uh, from predominantly defense of the Catholic faith to fundamentalists. What is this shift in the culture you're talking about, and how is that affecting your work? One of the big things that's happened just in our own lifetime has been the development of the Internet, and it really has brought us into a whole new age of communications. I sometimes divide up human history by talking about the different ages that we've passed through in terms of our ability to communicate. It all started with the era of the spoken word, when the only way to communicate information effectively was to talk to somebody face-to-face. And then we entered the age of the written word, where you didn't have to be face-to-face to communicate with someone. You could write stuff down when writing was invented. And so that opened up new possibilities. Among the possibilities it opened up was having scripture. You know, scripture is the product of the age of the written word after, after writing was invented. Then, in about 500 years ago, the printing press was invented, and it became possible not just to have writing to preserve someone's ideas and words, but to mass produce them so that they could get to a whole new audience. And we entered the age of the printed word at that point. And that also had religious implications like the development of Protestantism. Because if you're supposed to do your theology by scripture alone, if that's how, what everyone's supposed to do, then everyone needs a copy of the scriptures. And prior to the development of the printing press, that would have been impossible. And so the idea of Protestantism is something that the printing press enabled. Well, now we've had a new major revolution. We're now in the age of the electronic word, where basically everyone has a printing press and a global distribution system. And what that has done is it's made it possible for people anywhere in the world to communicate with people anywhere else in the world and talk to them about what they think about religion and faith and God and morality and all of that. It's had a dramatic effect of interconnecting the different religions so that now, let's say you're growing up in Arkansas where I did, you might not have had a Muslim that you would know or talk to, not in the age that I grew up. And now, if you want to talk to a Muslim, you can do that instantly on the web at any number of forums. And so now, instead of just, say, having a couple of local religions that may be engaged in dialogue, like maybe the Catholic Church and the Fundamentalist Church in your town, now everybody's talking to everybody. And so it's had this broadening effect that has impacted the world of Catholic apologetics as people talk to others of different persuasions and they encounter arguments and ideas, they are looking for responses to these. And so Catholic Answers and other apologetics organizations have correspondingly broadened their reach to cover all of these new discussions that are going on. I found this when I started my blog about six years ago. 
I really just started it because I wanted to publish stuff that nobody else would publish. And when it got out there, it wasn't long before I was realizing that this was an astounding new form of communication, as you say, in which anybody can publish to a global audience. And it wasn't long before checking my statistics, I saw that that's exactly what I was doing. I was having readership from all over the world. You must find the same with your blog. In case listeners are interested in following Jimmy, he's at jimmyaiken.com. Are you finding the same thing, Jimmy, that uh, you're having conversations with people on a global level? Yeah, I am. Um, I you know, publish blog posts online and I get responses from other places. I have an email list called the Secret Information Club, and I look at the stats on that and see that a large number of people who are subscribed to that are in far-flung parts of the world, uh, including countries that I, I know very little about in some cases. And I get emails from people in those other countries, and sometimes their English is shaky, but it's notable that they're reading and they're engaging and making the effort to communicate. And uh, I really admire that. Do you think that there's going to be any way that the powers that be are able to clamp down on the freedom of the Internet? Because this is the other thing which it is is changed. If you were a writer before the Internet, you, you had to publish through channels which were strictly controlled, whether they were books or newspapers or magazines. You had to get an article accepted. You had to get it through the editors and they get it commissioned. And it was a long process, and the gates were very strictly guarded. Now, as you say, anybody can publish anywhere. Are there any moves, do you think, to try to control this or try to, to clamp down on it? Well, there certainly are. The Internet is not as free as it could be in various places. In China, for example, they really try to clamp down on the dissident movement. There have been other countries in the Arab world that have tried to clamp down on things their people were doing on the internet. Even here in the United States, we have government surveillance of basically everything that happens on the internet, and that's going to have a chilling effect on what people are willing to say on the internet. So certainly there are efforts in various ways to directly or indirectly control what gets said on the internet, and those will have an impact, but there's a saying that some have proposed that information wants to be free, and the internet is such a useful tool that even if it's not always as free as it could be, it's still a dramatic shift from what we had before in terms of information freedom. And I think that's likely to continue in the future. What do you think? I think that there are going to be some people are going to try to clamp down on it and certainly uh, keep an eye on what's going on. But the beauties of the Internet mean that we can communicate globally uh, and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in a vibrant and in a live way. And in a way which circumvents not only publishers and editors, but also circumvents a certain kind of establishment, maybe a church establishment or a legal establishment that wants to keep things rather sedate and keep things rather calm. The thing I like about the Internet is that people can be just as crazy as they want. They can speak their mind and get a dialogue going back and forth. It's a very exciting medium, a very exciting place to be. I want to ask you in the few minutes that remain, Jimmy, about the shift of your content with apologetics presently. I find more and more of my blog posts and my conversations online are with atheists or agnostics, people who are pretty aggressive in their stance against the Catholic Church and against Christianity. Is Catholic Answers beginning to, to reply to some of these objections and some of these people as well? Yeah, and I'm very glad to see those opportunities opening up. I came to Catholic Answers from philosophy. My academic training is in philosophy, and so 
that kind of apologetics was something that I was trained in at the university level, you know, how to dialogue with atheists and what the arguments are and the objections to Christianity and how to answer them. And now that that's becoming more commonly discussed in the culture with like the so-called new atheists, we're getting more inquiries about that. And we've been responding. I've been writing more about that myself. We have a new guy here at Catholic Answers named Trent Horn, who's also largely working in that area. And so uh, that's definitely something that's happening these days. There's, there's more of a demand for information about atheism since it's become kind of more vocal in our culture in recent years. I know in my comment boxes, there seems to be an awful lot of ignorance and people picking up information from the Internet, which is unreliable. Do you find that there's actual real dialogue going on? Well, there is, and that dialogue is taking place in quite a number of different venues. The Patheos blog network you know, has an atheism channel and a Catholicism channel, and I know there's some cross-pollination there. There's also another site that's devoted exclusively to atheist-Catholic dialogue. It's called Strange Notions, and it's run by Brandon Vaught. I blog there, as do other people, and it's precisely the atheist-Catholic issues that are under discussion there. That's strangenotions.com. If, for example, you were to go there right now, you'd find that there's a series of posts where I and also Trent Horn have been interacting with an atheist named Richard Carrier, who's one of the most prominent mythicists. A mythicist is a person who thinks that Jesus actually didn't exist, that he was just a myth. And so uh, Strange Notions has been hosting a multi-part exchange on that subject. And you're actually getting some intelligent conversation going, are you? Yeah. Good. Good for you, because sometimes I despair. And when they come to my comment box, I I just don't engage with them anymore because I find that we're going around in circles. And very often, one of the problems is they are spouting stuff which they've read second or third hand online. This is actually one of the problems with the Internet is that there's so much information out there And there's so much that's bogus and there's so much that's unsubstantiated, any kind of academic standard where you had to prove your point and you had to quote your sources and you had to have footnotes and you had to have references. None of that applies. You can just say whatever you want. And, of course, people who don't have a high level of education can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that if it's there in print, it's true. Right. And as people get used to the Internet, there's a natural kind of evolution in how people regard it to where they know that they can't just take it as true because it's on the internet. There are people who aren't yet to that place and they do tend to just take what they read as if it were fact. But I think that'll evolve with time and I think people will just kind of naturally learn where the more trustworthy sources are. And it's also all the more important because people do have the tendency to believe whatever they read on the internet. It's important for us as Christians to be there defending our faith and showing why a lot of these bogus claims are bogus. For example, if you go to some atheist websites, they will claim, particularly in connection with the whole mythicist idea, that Jesus is based on various pagan gods like Horus or Mithras. And that's just total nonsense. One of my good buddies, John Sorensen, who writes at johnsorensen.net, has done a lot of work debunking the idea that Jesus is based on Horus or Mithras or other pagan gods. That material needs to be out there, and, and Catholics need to be aware of it, because they will encounter other people who've heard these, these ideas, and they'll need to know how to counter them. This kind of work is very important because the ignorance that's out there about an anti-Catholicism and this idea that Jesus is like Horus or like the other gods, it's almost on the same level of the old 
chick-track fundamentalism, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, in fact, there's a lot of commonalities between the kind of claims that you would get about Catholicism in a chick-track and the kind of claims that you would get about Christianity in some of the atheist literature that's out there these days. It's similar in tone frequently, but also it's similar in sourcing. If you go back and look at the sources that they're basing these claims on, they tend to go back to a bunch of 19th century nonsense when archaeology and the study of world religions was just developing, Mm -hmm. and people at that time had a kind of parallelomania where they would note parallels between Christianity and these other religions and draw sweeping conclusions from them. Whether it would be in a chick tract or in an atheist thing, you might see a picture of Mary with the baby Jesus and have it paralleled with some pagan goddess holding a baby, whether it's Isis and Osiris or uh, Samiramis and Tammuz or whoever it might be. And the fact that you have this mother and child image in these different religions was held as being incredibly significant. Well, you know what? Maybe we have mother and child images in all these different cultures because there are mothers with children in all these different cultures. Exactly. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe it, there's no sinister conspiracy or basing anything on anything else other than the concept of motherhood. The idea, too, that these different cultures actually affected and connected with one another and there was some kind of conspiracy, it's kind of like saying there's some kind of weird conspiracy between modern America and ancient Rome because they both had indoor plumbing. Right. You know, in fact, the similarity is down to the fact that human beings don't like living with the smell of waste material. (laughs) Right. You know, you have humans need to eat and drink, and so you have eating and drinking rituals in almost every religion of one form or another. doesn't mean they're all based on each other. It's just part of human nature and man's natural striving for the divine. If you're living in a culture that God hasn't made contact with the way he did through the Jewish faith and now through the Christian faith, people will strive in reverse to find God, and they'll naturally take up elements of their everyday experience like eating and drinking and motherhood and other things and try to use them as ways of feeling their way towards the true God. This is one of the things which impressed me about Catholicism in my own journey, Jimmy. When I came around to actually looking at the whole thing, realizing that the Catholic faith is intellectually sound, but also there's an awful lot of common sense to Catholicism, and that uh, always struck home to me and, and made a huge difference in my own journey. Is there anything in closing that you could share with our listeners about how to live a life that is apologetical? You want to understand your own faith. That's the starting point, because if you don't understand your own faith, you won't know what to defend. And the second thing is you want to try to understand other people, too. This is a point St. Paul makes in Romans. You know, we're no different than them. We're all human beings, and we're all subject to sin. And we all have an instinct for truth because God's law is written into our hearts. Consequently, put yourself in the shoes of another person of a different faith. If you want to try to understand where he's coming from, it'll help take a lot of the attitude out of our approach to other people. If we think of them as our neighbors, even if they're of different religions, if we think of them the way Jesus taught us to think of them, so that we can understand the best way to present the truth to them. The last thing I would add, of course, and I know you'd agree, is that combined with having the answers and studying is a life that's lived and a life that's authentic. Yeah. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today has been Jimmy Aiken, Senior Apologist at Catholic Answers. Follow him at jimmyaiken.com. Thank you for listening. 